0: Welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damien, And I'm Aaron. Thank you for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice.
1: Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the
0: lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want interdependent study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And so with that, Aaron, you're up this week. What are you bringing to the table? So today I've brought a book by Mark Lamont Hill
1: called We Still Here. Uh, I read this book shortly after it came out back in uh, December of 2020, just to clarify. <laughs> um, so not that long ago. Uh, and I really I loved it. Uh, it's formatted in a way that's conversational. Yep. Um, so... Uh, he talks with a colleague, Frank Barat, uh, and it's sort of a, a more clear way, uh, in my opinion, it comes through as, as clear, uh, to organize his thoughts throughout the book. They sort of talk back and forth, um, and it's it's a, a good way for the sort of conversation to get deeper. Um, but I also really appreciate his analysis of all the things we saw and experienced in 2020. Um, it's just so sharp. Yeah, um, yeah he ties things together super effectively between COVID-19 and the pandemic there uh, and police brutality and the history of systems in our country that were further exposed by the pandemic. Um, It's just, it's really good. Uh, And so Kianga Yamada Taylor, um, who is also a brilliant black radical feminist uh, in her own right, Right. um, wrote the forward and closed it, closed the forward by saying Mark Lamont Hill offers critical insights into the whirlwind that pandemic and racism have reaped. We Still Here appears at a time of intense study and debate about how we got here. And, most important, how we get out. Politics, history, strategy, and tactics are all that our side has. Read this book and we'll see you in the streets. <laughs> um, which I just, I love that that's the way that the the foreword closed. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but so I'm, I'm excited for this discussion
0: uh, and, and talking about this book, uh, what what sticks out to you first? Yeah, I'm excited about this discussion, too. And I love that. Read this book, and we'll see you in the streets. Yes. Uh, I appreciate that. We got out in the streets, too. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I'm really glad you brought this book to the table today. And I would definitely encourage everyone to add it to their reading list. It is mm-hmm. excellent, like you said. Um, and a, a bonus, or a great thing about it, is it's not really all that long, uh, which is awesome, just given how wild life is these days. Yeah. Um, but I guess one of the things that stuck out to me and I appreciated sort of generally about the book is his comprehensive and tangible ways that he talks about COVID-19 and policing and activism all through social, cultural, economic, um, historical, and and political lenses, if you will. I just think he does an incredible job talking about And framing all of that in the book. And I certainly think given how ubiquitous and devastating COVID has been and Mm -hmm. is, he also does a phenomenal job spelling out COVID's impact on our country, and especially on our country's most vulnerable communities. And I think that's one of the most critical takeaways from this book. Um, I was really compelled by his examination of the economy and the economic conditions that sort of underscore the pandemic, and and the links to how it has impacted people, especially Black and Brown folks. You know, in one part of the book, he talks about how Black folks have been and are disproportionately vulnerable to COVID, and you know, he argues that in a lot of ways, that's because of the conditions for Black vulnerability. Um, you know, obviously, we know in terms of COVID, the stats are that black and brown people are something like four times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID than white people, and almost three times more likely to die from it. And so what Mark specifically says is how this country, how in this country, I should say, black people are near the top of every index of social misery, and close to the bottom of every index of social prosperity. And so this is how we see that Black families have a net worth that is 10 times less than white families. You know, this is how we see that Black people are consistently denied access and proper treatment as it relates to housing and, and healthcare and education and, and food security. Um, and so, you know, again, these realities and economic conditions create and contribute to the conditions for Black vulnerability, which doesn't make it a huge leap at all to see and understand how COVID has disproportionately impacted Black folks in this country. Mm -hmm. which I think just makes the realities of an already traumatizing and, and tremendously sad pandemic, even worse.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I think about as I hear you listening or listing out a lot of the things there is like, so you, you listed housing, healthcare, education, food security uh, and living wage jobs. And, and he you know i think all of those book all of those topics could be their own book oh absolutely um but i think he does a really good job of exploring them in a way that explains sort of the the general um experiences or or the impact yes. uh, of those things um uh, within the context of the pandemic so right. yeah um but you know on top of that all of the ways that he examined um, and ex- the pandemic specifically and how it exposed the social misery of, of black people in the U.S. is super eye-opening. Yes, um, absolutely. I think, you know, these weren't e- entirely brand new things that he was talking about to me. Sure. I like, you know, understanding that the housing system is racist, that uh, the the way that jobs work is racist, like all of that was stuff that I knew. And, um, you know, you combine race with class and, and there's mm-hmm. more. Uh, impact there Um, but the way he was able to concisely connect everything together is really what stuck out to me yeah Um, yeah and so one of the one of the pieces that he talks about that's connected to all of that I think is the way this the ways that social distance is such a huge part of slowing the spread of COVID yeah Um, and then like sort of his critiques of the way that that concept or public health kind of um request mm-hmm. i guess uh, or guideline was laid out um or was rolled out rather um and so in one part of the book he says social distance isn't just a physical geographic or spatial measure social distance is also an index of privilege mm-hmm. who has the ability to create social distance who has the resources to sustain social distance the answers to these questions reveal deep structural issues, and I remember when I first read that part, um, how much it kind of sh- just shook me. Yeah, right? um, I hadn't had to critically think about mm. my own ability to create social distance, right, um, in the ways that I needed to, you know, be healthy and safe in the context of this pandemic. Uh, and so I, I feel like he held a mirror up to me, mm. um, in a way. Um, and right. So I think about my job, Mm -hmm. um, Laura, my wife's job, like, right. We shifted to remote work, um, and we were able to stay in our home. Um, right. Right. Which is in a sort of suburban area, Mm -hmm. relatively far from other people. We had access to sort of, um, our own little outdoor space, but could go safely to other parks and places in the area, um, to get outside some. And so, you know i vaguely understood sort of broadly that you know not everybody could do what we were doing right mm-hmm. um but it also highlighted how much our privilege in this situation uh connected directly with our physical safety and how mm-hmm. um sort of distressing that is when you think
0: about it and when you, when it like, right when he really broke that down um yeah Absolutely, yeah. I appreciate that. I think that's part of the power of this book. In, in one way, um, you talk about sort of how Mark exposes sort of these concepts to folks. And so, if you if you are if you are unfamiliar with them, um, I think this is a really great sort of introduction um, to sort of these concepts yeah. and and how COVID has impacted us and impacted in particular um, folks with marginalized identities. Um, but right similarly i have mm-hmm. some of that same privilege too of being able to you know work remotely work in my home and um and and go about my life uh, but that that like i appreciate sort of that uh, this idea of like, holding a mirror up yep. um and some of that privilege that we we have for sure um you know i i thought about you as i was Reading parts of this book because he mm-hmm. talks a lot about capitalism, mm-hmm. um, and I know you have lots of thoughts about capitalism. Y- y'all, y'all a get few. ready. Y'all get a ready. <laughs> uh, you know, Mark actually specifically uses the term "corona capitalism," which, as I talked about a little bit earlier, is all about sort of the economic and systemic conditions that made the most vulnerable folks more likely to get sick and die, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, through this pandemic. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm, as I said, I've thought, I thought about you and I'm, I've am i been preparing for this moment. I, I'm curious <laughs> to hear your thoughts and sort of have a conversation about Mark's commentary on capitalism, because he certainly had a lot to say about it. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. I like how you said that I've been preparing for this moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, he just rips into the way that capitalism works in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about. Uh, that relationship to poverty and infection rates um, and kind of what that means. Um, And I think that's connected to my last comment, right, about social distance and and who's able to create uh, and maintain social distance. Absolutely. Um, But uh, he also talks about how it... Corona capitalism, that, that phrase you used, how it describes how century, centuries of racial capitalism and decades of neoliberal economic policy not only created the conditions for the COVID-19 pandemic, but also informed our legal, economic, mm. medical, ecological, cultural, and social, social responses to it. Yes. So it's not really about the virus itself. Yeah. Um, But about how the capitalism within the United States skews how we're even able to respond to the pandemic as it's happening. Right, Um, People are disproportionately impacted. um, And so we've already kind of talked about that a little bit in terms of housing and jobs and um, all of these things and social distance. Um, But he goes on to say and explain a little bit more. Um, or dive a little deeper into that concept of Corona capitalism. Uh, he says it exposes the danger of living within a white supremacist capitalist mm-hmm. empire Yeah. in the United States. Being poor, black and sick makes you more likely to die. Your proximity to death makes you disposable. Mm-hmm. Your disposability makes you exploitable. And um, I feel like that, that uh, this is what I was talking about when, why, why I wanted to talk about this book um, and why I appreciate it so much um, is just like that very small paragraph. Mm -hmm. Um, He connects what's happening in the context of the pandemic to history um, and the present day of the United States. Um, And so I really, yeah. um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Just so appreciative of this book and his critiques of capitalism, but also of, you know, white supremacy that's present yeah. in the U.S. And yeah. and um, the, the empire um, that he calls it. Um, but I think, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about the ways that people are taken advantage of in this system. Um, but we should also talk about the people who take
0: advantage of these systems because that's a whole other thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well one reaction to sort of what you just said is I I absolutely appreciated that. And sort of this connection to, um, both the sort of conditions and realities, but also white supremacy. Right. Mm -hmm. And as we think about our, um, uh, 45, uh, and we think about, I I just refuse to call him anything. Um, that's really the nicest thing I can say right now, 45. Um, and we think about sort of his, and Mark talks about this in the book too, his, um, handling and management of our response to this crisis um and and covid you know there's another thing that makes this book brilliant is his connection to and his mark's ability to to tell us that story right um even though obviously we all lived through it right um so okay you talked about you know people are being taken advantage of but um also there are people who take advantage of the system you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Absolutely. Uh, and I, I'll own this for myself, you know, you know, because in the book he talks about Amazon and, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll own it for myself. I'm not going to speak for anybody in the room with me or <laughs> anybody listening. Uh, you know, I still buy stuff from Amazon. Um, but he talks about Amazon as sort of a, a case study yeah. um, here on capitalism and this notion of Corona capitalism. Um and and it was brilliant. I mean, I, I actually think I was with you when I was reading this part of the book, but I was shocked when he highlights the fact that Amazon will account for something like half, 50% y'all of all online sales nationwide yep. by the end of this year, 2021. I I I mean, I guess I should say not shocked in the sort of traditional or naive sense, but because I get it and as I said I'm part of it, but It's still a shocking and awing realization, I think, just how huge of an entity Amazon is. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I
1: I read this book um, on an Amazon Kindle, so I will also (laughs) disclose, um, you know, I've used uh, and continue to use their products. Um, But I did buy the book directly from the publisher. Yes, yes, he did. um, That's... (laughs) One way to sort of, to shift the, shift where my dollars are going. Yes. Um, right. Um, so, yeah, I think billionaires are making billions more during this pandemic, yes, right? They the are. the The filthiest, wealthiest people in the country are continuing to get more filthy wealthy. Yes. Um, and so it's not really just about Amazon here but I you know I appreciate what you said it's a case study. Yeah. Um they set themselves up as a convenient option well before the pandemic through um, their ability to avoid taxes for yeah. years yeah. right I think that in at one point in the book he points out that um, I think it was 2018, they paid a 1.2% tax rate, yeah. um, yeah. which is ridiculous, Absurd. uh, the year before that. So that was an improvement on the year before that, which was a 0% tax rate. <laughs> but then the year before that, they got a, they got a refund. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I guess 1.2% is better than a refund. How about but, it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I like to think about that refund is public subsidies for Amazon, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of ways in which Amazon and companies like Amazon are able to take advantage of these publicly um, created programs. Yeah. Um, right. Tax avoidance, et cetera. But they also use this strategy called that he talks about in the book called Beachhead. Mm-hmm. Um, so they Became dominant in one specific market, um, which was originally online book sales, right? Yeah. Like when Amazon started, that's all you could really buy. Um, and I think it was mid-2000, mid that decade, yeah. um, where they started a shift and you could buy more and more stuff online through their website. Um, so they sold books way cheaper than anybody else could afford to sell them yep. because they could hold them in one single warehouse and then ship them out to you. Mm-hmm. So their overhead was a little bit lower um, than, you know, your local independently owned bookstore. Um, so they started pushing out competition because of their, their approach to, to making sales. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they were able to use that stronghold and name recognition to spread out into other areas. Yeah. they Right. Did. Um, yeah. And, uh expand their product offerings and and whatnot. So um it it really was it became the most convenient retailer in a time when going to the stores presented a real risk that yeah. we, you know, early on in the pandemic we didn't really understand. And we couldn't and shouldn't right. go out. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about early on in the pandemic, the story about somebody catching um COVID-19 from pressing an elevator button. Yes. Right. right. And so we were all kind of scared yeah. um about what what going to the store meant um so naturally shifting to like well who, who can bring me things yeah right like right. where can i get things without leaving the house right um it, it made sense um in in a way uh and they were the biggest name yeah. at the time right so um yeah so it, but it's also not just their retail operations and us buying stuff and getting it shipped here okay in less than a day um but they also host a ton of web content on Mm. the internet yes right so i think i don't i might be wrong on this but uh because it might have changed recently but netflix and all of their content i believe was hosted on amazon web service oh wow um right and so i'm sure that there are other big sort of streaming cloud operations like that. Um, So, you know, and streaming went up a lot. So absolutely. I'm also guessing that they indirectly made more money on us staying home more and streaming more. Mm. Right. Um, And you know, it's not just streaming, but they also sell us movies and right. Right. They have (laughs) their own content that we uh, can buy. Um, But also, you know, um, Mark Lamont Hill points out in the book that he, that, people will say that maybe this was a natural sort of force of the free market that Amazon was able to mm. to create this stronghold right. um, and kind of empire, if you will. Um, but he says that it's not natural functions of a free market, quote unquote, but Amazon exists because government regulations allow and encourages something like Amazon to yes, exist, right? Absolutely. Um, so he talks about you know, early on in the pandemic, he talks about this happened. He talks about these guys who they made some sick and twisted decisions here, but they bought up a bunch of hand sanitizer. Oh, right. Yeah. Right? You remember yeah. this? Yep. Yeah. So they bought up a bunch of hand sanitizer and they tried to sell it off at these ridiculous prices. Mm-hmm. And then they got busted and investigated for price gouging. Right. As individuals. Yeah. So individuals are going to get held accountable here for their. Choices, but then Amazon gets to skate by yep. uh, and demand legislation against price gouging when they've been able to use the system and to weasel their way into becoming the largest retailer, probably ever. Yep. An online retailer. I don't, you know, I don't know if I can speak to retail in general. Right. Um and as you mentioned, they're gonna account for fifty percent of all online sales across the US within the next year. So, right? Like yeah. we're gonna pay attention to those guys who stocked up on hand sanitizer and we're selling it out of the gar- out of their garage, but, you know, this big corporation,
0: eh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot that story uh, that he, in the book, uh, about those hand sanitizer folks. And you're right. Yeah. We're, we're going after them, mm-hmm. but Amazon gets to skate by. Um,
1: yeah. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't be held accountable oh, in absolutely, some way. Right. But it's abhorrent that they would do yeah, that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's not I don't that's not my answer to that situation it's just like a juxtaposition of like you know individuals get held accountable and then corporations get to do whatever whatever they want yep. yeah
0: absolutely without penalty mm-hmm. um absolutely so yeah I I figured you might have some thoughts uh, overall <laughs> about capitalism and and Mark's concept of corona capitalism mm-hmm. uh, so I appreciate that um, I, I think I want to switch gears a bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, in in one part of the book, Mark talks about surveillance and, and monitoring of Black people in this country. Um, but I think more to the point, he talks about the fact that police killings are now filmed by body cameras and cell phones and how we as a nation have been confronted more and more by that footage in recent years. Yeah. Um, he He goes on to talk about the impact of that in terms of white folks and racism, right? The idea that before the time of seeing that kind of footage on TV, white folks could deny racism. Uh, the idea that um, they could deny that these types of vicious and unjustified killings of black people by police and racists, for example, mm-hmm. was actually a thing. Um, and that cycle went on and on and on and, and continue to perpetuate white violence against black people perpetuate racism, um, and, and really perpetuate white supremacy. Yeah. Um, and sort of in that same section, he talks about the killings of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and others and how we watched those murders on TV, um, and how they sparked national outrage and a surge in participation in and with the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had to sit with that part of the book for a while. Um, and I and I wanted to share a little bit about my personal experience reacting to it. Um, you know, we've talked in previous episodes about how and why the work of social justice and collective liberation is important to us. And we've talked about how who we are matters. I mean, we talked a lot about that in our very first episode and we do it in every episode, but you know, why who we are matters and how it impacts and influences us in this work. And, and I've definitely shared this before. And Mark so eloquently talks about it in the book. The fact that, you know, he watched several of those videos, including George Floyd. And I think he uses the words like it shook him and it mm-hmm. took this immense toll on him. And and I, like I'm sure many folks out there felt the same way. You know, it it is horrible and gut-wrenching and incredibly painful to... Read about the stories, and especially to watch the videos of people who look like me be murdered over and over again in this country. And I, I guess, I guess there are sort of two points I want to make here. Uh, you know, the first is simply that Black Lives Matter. Yes, and that is more than a statement. it, it is more than a movement. It is fact. You know, I am all about engaging in conversations with folks you know it's part of the reason why we're doing this podcast mm-hmm. uh you know i'm all about engaging in conversations with folks and i truly believe that we all have learning and unlearning work to do we say it here in our podcast um, however i am simply not interested and i'm never going to engage with someone who cannot see my humanity as a black man as a person as a human being if if you can't say and acknowledge and believe that black lives matter that, you know, I guess the nicest way I can say it is, is goodbye. Like I'm, mm-hmm. that's just something I'm not interested in doing at all. And so, um, I, I was really sort of moved by that part of the book, um, and sort of this whole notion of, um, police brutality and, and the loss of life, the loss of black life, um, in 2020, but even it goes so far back. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's still so mind-boggling to me that people hear Black Lives Matter uh, and then think it means that only Black Lives Matter. Right. Um, and it's this blatant racist, like, automatic reaction, I think, because the conversation gets shifted and it's yeah. no longer centered on uh, white people, but it's centered on how Black Lives Matter. Um And so it actually reminds me of this um, quote from the book um, that says, for many white Americans, it is better to accept a comforting lie than an unsettling truth Mm. to accept that black people are routinely terrorized by the state would force them to confront their most coveted beliefs about the country to concede that black people are treated as subhuman because they are not white would force them to forge new more ethical psychological and political commitments mm, yeah if they aren't prepared to do this then it will never happen and i think it that feels so connected to to that reaction that people still have uh, when they hear black lives matter yeah. um right and there there's a lot of reactions to them um and i'm not going to name them all because i i don't need to um but it's, it's that unsettling truth that he
0: describes that's still ignored by so many people. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. You know, um, so related to that, I think the other point I want to make mm-hmm. is related to Mark's inclusion of Ibram Kendi's good thinking and work around racism in the book. Um, we, we all know, many of us have read Ibram Kendi. You know, he says that folks are either racist or anti-racist. And that, and that it's not enough to not be racist, you have to be active against racism and work to dismantle white supremacy in your work and in your everyday life. And so, you know, some examples of that in the book of, of how to be anti-racist in your everyday life are things like moving beyond symbolic gestures and actually thinking about and asking folks of color, communities of color, what they need and actually work to provide it and support that effort. Um, you know, another is, is thinking about where you spend your money, um, uh, as we've talked about a lot mm-hmm. today and in, in, in the podcast. Um, and, and another is thinking about uh, what organizations you support through your monetary donations, but also with your time. And, and, and those are just a few examples in the book and and we talked about some others, but in general, I think the importance of and the call to action to be anti-racist is paramount in terms of the work of social justice and liberation and in terms of what we need in the world in which we live. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, you know, I just I just quoted from the book, and yeah. I said this, but, um, you know, he calls it a white supremacist, he calls the U.S., yeah. a white supremacist capitalist empire. Mm. Um, and so if we can accept that, then we have to center anti-racism and critiques of capitalism and also critiques of empire more broadly. Right. Right. Um, and what imperialism is doing and has done to the world. Absolutely. Um But we also need to connect that to an intersectional feminism and LGBTQ liberation um, and all the other ways that we limit people's humanity, right? Like whether it's through ability or citizenship
0: status or what have you. Um, So, yes, and. Yes, and, (laughs) right? Yeah, and, you know, he, in the book, he also talks about the fact that he he says it sort of blatantly, like all black lives matter, right? And so related to that, I think, I think when you're thinking about all Black lives matter, um, we aren't just talking about Black men. Uh, mm-hmm. We have to be, and we must be talking about Black women, Black LGBTQ folks, Black people with disabilities, and and others on the margins of our communities. Um, and so, and so with that, and with what you just said around intersectional feminism and LGBTQ liberation, right? Like all of these things are at play and need to be at play, right? Um, and I and I think. It's a key reason why the collective we, um, or yeah. why white folks, or or why folks of color and even black folks struggle um, with, sometimes struggle with all all black lives matter, even just black lives matter in general, um, and why it's been difficult to do real justice by folks with these identities. Um, and, a, and a key reason for that, I think, and, and Mark talks about in the book, is patriarchy, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm
0: yeah um you know i i've
1: said it now three times but uh he calls he calls the u.s uh white supremacist capitalist empire absolutely um which i think names a lot about this country yes uh, it names a lot it names where it comes from it names mm-hmm. where we are uh, but i i don't think it captures necessarily everything mm-hmm. about it um and so you know my admiration for bell hooks we yes. talked about it last week yeah um but she calls in her work the U.S. a white supremacist, capitalist, patri- imperialist patriarchy. Yes. right? And so that connects patriarchy into that framing. Um, and so we can see in that framing that people can exist at the margins of some of those things and or all of those things. right? Um, but I think, you know, Mark Lamont Hill is naming here patriarchy specifically, um, which is important because patriarchy sets up. A bunch of expectations mm-hmm. for us for our gender identities and our sexuality um it creates these neat little boxes that we expect everyone to fit into Yes. right and so if you're not cisgender um or header and or heterosexual um in these patriarchal expectations right then you're placed at the margins right um and your life is limited and diminished in in a variety of ways yeah um so he's naming something that I think Kimberly Crenshaw um, is another scholar, um, and she coined the term intersectionality. Yeah. Um, so this is work that I think she's been doing around um, the hashtag SayHerName. Yes. Um, uh, and telling yeah. stories about the black women um, and femmes who have been victims of state violence. Right. Um, because we also have to name the ways that black women, Trans people are also killed at hugely disproportionate rates, yeah. Whether that's by state officers mm-hmm. or by um um vigilantes, right. right? Or and you know, so um, yeah, patriarchy and its expectations can be like just super
0: violent, absolutely, yeah. And one of the other things that I i i heard in what you were saying, you didn't quite say, but patriarchy sort of also dictates how we interact with one another. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, and so we have to sort of be working to dismantle that notion. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. For sure. So that kind of leads me
1: into the, our application section of the podcast. Great. All right. Um, Cause we've just dis- discussed the book for quite a bit. Um, but I think there's just so much in this book that is applicable yeah. um, because Throughout it, he's literally talking about the world around us, right? Yes. Like, that's the point of the book. Yeah. Um, so what what
0: are some ways that you think you're gonna apply it? Oh, okay. I'm starting. I like this. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think an application of this book for me is closely tied to our conversations here on the podcast around collective liberation, um, and it's it's an idea that Mark presents towards the end of the book mm-hmm. around embracing an abolitionist vision for our future and dreaming about the quote-unquote impossible for our future. Yes. And and he asked these three questions, and I thought they were powerful. What does freedom actually look like? What does justice require? And what will the future demand of us to one day declare victory? And, And after posing those questions, he challenges us to answer them in a way where we are actively working towards uh, building a world where we actually meet each other's needs, uh, yeah. where we work together to take care of one another and and all of our communities, um, and where everyone has access to resources and safety and dignity and freedom, yeah. And and so this, I don't know. This may be big and a bit lofty in terms of application work, uh, but I think we all have to really think about our answers to those questions mm-hmm. and. What we want those answers to be, and then hold ourselves accountable and our leaders accountable to do the work required of us to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think an example of this is something that I just saw in a tweet the other day, and and we've actually talked about this concept. Um, we talked about it on our in our last episode, but the tweet said something to the effect of the the notion of addressing things like systemic racism requires going beyond conversations. And actually changing policies that continue to perpetuate the same racial and social and economic disparities that exist in our country. Yeah. And so that certainly means sacrifices for some of us. Um, but the reality is that we are all connected beings. And you have said that so many times on the show before. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think it's a beautiful sentiment. Um, and none of us can be well and thrive unless we all do. Yeah, and that's—I mean—that's why we are interdependent study, yes. right? Yeah, because,
1: um, yeah, yeah. So two big things I think stick out to me about what you just said. Okay. Um, the first is imagining a world beyond what currently seems possible. Mm. Um, I think that radical imagination just seems so important right now. Yes, like if we collectively determine the ways in which we are policed no longer works for us. What does community safety look like? Yeah. Right. Like what, what, what does that mean to us? Yeah. Um, because it's such a, it's such a way to sort of steer the conversation away from imagining things is like, well, that's, that's the one way we have safety. Um, and I think there are many other ways. Like, so if the police had never existed, um, and they're a relatively recent institution anyway, right. Yes. Um, then what does community safety look like? Um, There are so many ways to answer that question. Mm -hmm. um, And it takes a a lot of imagination, I think, to figure out how that could be different. Yes. Um, The other thing I thought about while you were speaking was about how we're so focused on competition and individuality in the United States. Mm. Um, So what does it look like if we thought more about cooperation and community instead? Yeah. Yeah. And we were sort of collaborating with each other in in communities um, and right
0: across across whatever work it is that we're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, that I think that's going to require a whole new world for us. Right. It's Mm -hmm. a whole it's an entire paradigm shift uh, for so many folks in terms of what we've seen in our past um, and how we've operated in our past. Um, But in order to get there, we've got to do things differently. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So shifting us into homework. Okay. um, I think we've already laid out quite a bit of homework, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) uh, Which doesn't mean we don't have more, but um, (laughs) we asked some big questions that are tough to answer. Yeah. Um, So I encourage folks to, uh, you know, beyond those questions, consider contributing to a mutual aid fund near you um, because that's a way to focus on cooperation and community. By directly contributing some money, um, maybe some food, uh, whatever it might be, to some people who are in your community who need some support. Yeah. Um, but also consider how the pandemic is affecting your community or those folks who are considered disposable yeah. in our society. Um, you know, I think about jails and prisons um, are they de densifying appropriately based on COVID precautions? Probably not. Yeah. Um. I, that's been a big sort of movement is to release people who are, um, who who should be released so right. that we can um sort of protect them from the pandemic because right. um they're not disposable. Um. And so that's a that's connected to a big part of of his critique of all of us culturally. Culturally is how disposable we view people. Yeah. Um. So. I think that reflection piece, uh, another reflection piece could also be um, homework, too, is how do I,
0: as an individual, participate in the politics of disposability? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I've thought about that a lot in terms of thinking about sort of our community and, and, and ways in which we're thinking about those in our community uh, who may be struggling through this. You know, I, I um, in the neighborhood in which you live sort of in the, uh, as I drive over um, you know, there've been days where I have seen long lines at this church that's doing sort of a, um, a, f- a pantry um, mm-hmm. distribution. And the very first time, I mean, this was months ago and early on in the pandemic, but I was, I was blown away by the number of cars in that line. I mean, it wrapped around and wrapped around mm-hmm. um, and, and it, and it gave me pause to think about, well, you know, that's not the experience that I have um, and and folks need support through this pandemic. And so I've, um, I've contributed to that uh, pantry. Um, so I I appreciate that as, as a bit of homework for all of us and, mm-hmm. and sort of application of all of this. Um, you're right. We've given a lot of homework. I think, I mean, <laughs> for one thing, we talked a lot about Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> I want to think about, how much I'm spending on Amazon for sure, um, but I but I also think I want to do some. So this is maybe personal homework, but feel free to join in. Um, I I want to do some more reading um, from folks from Black feminists and and radical Black feminists. You know, Mark references them throughout the book, and and so much of their work and thoughts and research and efforts have really been the backbone of movement work and change. Um, and has really pushed forward the work of social justice and collective liberation. And so, you know, I've definitely read the work of folks like Angela Davis and uh, Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde and others, but there is so much more out there, and I really want to dive into it. Um, so that's some, some homework for me. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's great homework. Um, read More Radical Black Feminists. Um, also, to quote the aforementioned Dr. Angela Davis here, yeah. too, Um, radical simply means grasping at the root Mm. when we're trying to solve a problem yeah right Um, love that all right so that's it for homework so uh, Damien you're up next week what are you bringing to the table for us
0: yeah Uh, so uh, folks next week in true overachiever fashion (laughs) uh, no I'm not actually an overachiever I think that was a joke but (laughs) uh, I'm bringing three articles to the table um, and they all center around anti-racism, and whiteness, and niceness. Um, the th- the three articles that we're reading are all from a few years ago, but I think they serve as good background and context for the conversation that I think and I hope uh, we're going to have on the show. Um, for some context, you know, Aaron and I have had quite a few conversations in the past about this idea of, quote-unquote, nice white folks <laughs> and woke white folks, mm-hmm. and and we also have interacted with a lot of nice well-intentioned white people. Mm-hmm. And it's it's often the case that those folks actually are and and they are truly nice. Um, but we've talked about how in the context of social justice education in workspaces, in life, like being nice is just not enough. Yeah. And so we wanted to sort of talk about and explore that topic on, on our on our podcast. Um, and so we'll definitely post links to these articles on our website and in the link in our bio and Instagram. Kind of shout out there to visit our website and follow us on social media uh, Mm -hmm. at interstudypod. But let me share the articles here. So the first article is on Medium, and it's by Ellie Dowd, and it's called White Niceness as the Enemy of Black Liberation. The second is a piece on The Guardian's website by Robin DiAngelo called White People Assume Niceness is the Answer to Racial Inequality. It's not and the third and final article is featured on psychology today's website. It's by Lori Essig and it's called White Like Me, Nice Like Me. So, we, you know, we certainly hope you'll check out these articles, read them with us and and join us next week. Well, that sounds nice. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well done. Yeah, I was told I'm
1: not funny enough on the podcast, <laughs> so um, There's a little joke for everybody there. There you go. Um, So yes, with that, thank you so much for joining us today and listening to Interdependent Study. Uh, You already know what I'm going to say here, but in case you forgot, please subscribe, leave a rating and a review, share our podcast and follow us on social media. We are so grateful to and for all of you for listening. Absolutely.
0: And as always, folks, remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. We'll talk to you next week.